back to The Mentors. This is Vadim. And Sergey. And this is a show where we tell stories of ordinary people that became extraordinary entrepreneurs and leaders despite lack of experience, money, or connections. And today on the show, it's our pleasure to have David Postolsky, who is going to talk to us about a lot of topics, but one of the things that we've never had on the show is someone that can speak to what are the important things for entrepreneurs to know and understand about intellectual property, protecting themselves and their IP and their creation, all the way from the very early days before they even have the money to spend on IP, all the way through when they're a little bit more mature, they're starting to generate business and they maybe can't afford legal counsel and expertise just like David's and we're going to talk about a bunch of different areas here but mostly focusing on the early stages but David why don't you start us off with a little bit about who you are and how you developed your own expertise when it comes to early stage intellectual property law because I don't think that's something that a lot of people pay attention to until it's too late and I think it'll be interesting to hear your perspective on how you got into it and what drew you to working with earlier stage companies after your time spent in corporate. First of all, thank you so much, guys. It's uh, really awesome to be here. Thanks for, for having me. You know, uh, I've been doing this for about uh, 17 years, and I probably have uh, created a little niche for myself, but it was really due to the fact that I wanted something more out of my career and life and whatnot. I started my career very early and worked at big firms and large corporations, and it really wasn't kind of soul-satisfying type of work. I wasn't really connecting to the inventor or the entrepreneur or the why, the who, the what. I was really just saying here, you know, as a young associate at a large firm, take this and write this patent application or follow this trademark application. So about 10 years ago, I kind of left that life behind and decided to devote my life to startups and entrepreneurs because I really wanted to do some soul satisfying work and I wanted to not have to think about the billable hour. It shouldn't always be about the billable hour. It should be about something else. So I now find myself at a firm where I'm, it's a small firm, there are about 25 people, which makes sense because you can be more flexible and nimble. And you can also engage with clients in a way, not just to protect their intellectual property, but also to, to grow their business because the intellectual property is just a tool to grow their business. But that means the way we function as a business, we have to, we're entrepreneurs as well. Like I'm an entrepreneurial lawyer as well as a lawyer that services entrepreneurs. And by that, we really put our money where our mouth is. It's, there's something more important to just getting the intellectual property, to securing it. It's, it's great. It's amazing. You have to do it, right? And we'll talk about it. But there's also growing your business and how to commercialize, how to monetize, how to you know choose the right corporate organization, how to understand the regulatory and ethical issues surrounding your venture. And that's stuff that when you're an intellectual property lawyer at a large firm, not, no one really cares about that. But we care. And so being at this firm, it's called, it's called Gerhard Law, by the way, it, that's our thing. That's what we love to do. There's just much more important things to do. And so it, it was like a life choice and then my career choice followed after that you so, know yeah and i think actually that as you mentioned you are actually a very entrepreneurial person you're not just a lawyer you are an entrepreneurial lawyer tell us that story of how you found yourself as i believe you mentioned in a pre-interview that you're um the only partner or one of the only partners at the firm um tell us about that story of how this firm came together i believe you met richard gearhart yes. at some point and you became partner at this firm how did that happen so it's amazing uh it's amazing how two people who've never met each other 
could come together and realize that they had so much in common. So Richard Gerhardt was also kind of very similar path to me, worked at large firms, worked at large companies, and decided also that he wanted something more. Uh, he started a venture fund at his last company, which was uh, helping uh, biotech startups kind of grow. And I think that was the bug that bit him. And so this was happening to him while I was going through the same exact journey that I was going through, which was also working at large firms. And then the entrepreneurial bug bit me as well. And so I knew of him. He was, I was living in New Jersey at the time. I was working at a New Jersey firm, a pretty large firm. And uh, I reached out to him. I just totally cold called him. Hmm. And uh, I said, I have, you know, X amount of clients. I'm billing X amount of dollars. I need a platform, right? I need something to believe in, something more. We had lunch. Uh, a week later, I was at his firm. Wow. And uh, it's just me and him as partners. The firm has grown considerably. It's amazing uh, when you have the right structure and the right internal workings of how to you know, scale, right? Just like any other company, that's what we're trying to do as well. If you, when you have that all set up internally at your company, it's amazing how much growth you can get from it personally as well. And so... So I met Rich and it was kind of love at first sight. We've been together for about five years. Um, yeah, so it's just me and him as partners. We have a bunch of associates, all in different technology and science backgrounds, which is what you need to help protect people that have inventions in different science and technical backgrounds. And so it's been exciting. It's been really cool to be somewhere that finally I don't have to be looking for anything else. That was really important to me. It took me about 15 years to find him and... and um, you know, I often say to, you know, entrepreneurs and even young lawyers that are coming up, like, you really have to chase happiness, right? It's not just about making money. You have to chase your passion and your happiness because it may take you on a path that you kind of least expected and least planned for. But if you can take that risk and jump it, because it's probably going to be a risky decision usually to chase happiness sometimes, it could all work out, you know? I love the entrepreneurial way in which you even found this opportunity, reaching out proactively, probably because you had more of an idea of what you were looking for at this point, or at the very least, what you wanted your day-to-day -day to look like. And I guess when you found Richard, uh, he was open enough to uh, kind of let you in. One of the things that you mentioned is, you know, you work with a lot of folks, I guess, in the deep tech and the sciences, things like that. Uh, which sometimes is a different animal, I think, with, in terms of the type of client that you work with. You have to keep other things in mind. As a matter of fact, if the audience is wondering, oftentimes our audience wonders how we find our guests. And we actually met you, David, through a recent guest that we had on the show, Kevin Yu, founder of WearWorks. And Kevin's been working on his company, was it about four years, Sergey? Yeah, four or five years, yeah. Four or five years. And you were with Kevin from the very beginning, is that right? Yeah, from the very beginning. So I should tell you something. I should back up about 10 years ago mm -hmm. when in my career, I was working at a large company, Cantor Fitzgerald, which was the company that lost 675 people during the World Trade Center. Uh -huh. But it was also the time that I realized that I'm a, I have this passion for education, and the best way to educate someone is when you don't have an ulterior motive, right? And because I was at a company, I can teach and I can teach entrepreneurs and I can work with universities and accelerators and incubators. 
And I was really just doing it for education and empowerment because there's no ulterior motive, meaning I'm not trying to land them as a client because I'm working for a company. Hmm. And that really was like the start of like me trying to be an educator. And so a few years ago, I was honored enough to kind of be the intellectual property mentor and educator for a group of accelerators that still exist in New York. And one of them was Urban X and a great accelerator still around in Brooklyn, and they solve urban problems, right? They're launching 16 companies a year, companies that are looking at solving urban issues, um, transportation issues, temperature issues, garbage issues, whatever a city deals with. And um, so Kevin, you and Wearworks were the first company that I worked with while, like it was Urban X's first year oh, wow. and they were the first company. And uh, I have a few others that were part of that cohort. But yeah, I've been with them ever since. We got them their patent, which is amazing. We've helped them as much as we can in trademarks and patents and monetization and introducing them to investors and all that kind of stuff because that's stuff we love to do as well. And it doesn't cost anything to do that kind of thing. And uh, yeah, they're a great example of you know working with tech entrepreneurs, which is a little bit different. Sometimes you're right. It's very science related usually, or very tech related or software related, but it matches us as patent attorneys. My background's in computer science and chemistry. It matches our strategic ways of thinking. And um, that comes in handy a lot, I think. Yeah. So I want to talk about that stage a little bit more. And we could talk about it from the perspective of these types of entrepreneurs specifically because obviously we deal with patents and IP and the like. But even with the students that I have, and I've also been teaching now for a few years and do probably for very similar reasons to you because I like it and enjoy making students aware, essentially, because I feel like when I was that age, I didn't necessarily have access to these types of classes, to this type of insight that can only come from practitioners, people that are in the field that have had that experience that can essentially just kind of show you exactly how things work in the real world as opposed to just academia. But a lot of people that don't have a ton of experience starting companies, or even actually even the ones that do, oftentimes you start a different type of company and you're still confused, like when do I need a lawyer? At what stage? What do they need to do? How much are they going to cost? You know, And I think that's still a difficult decision to make for a lot of people. So specifically for folks, let's say at the stage where Kevin was when you met him, at what point do you think someone needs a lawyer or legal counsel to actually pay for a lawyer? And then at the same time, maybe if they don't need to pay for a lawyer, like how can they still get those legal resources to know and have peace of mind that they're in the right direction? Yeah, it's a phenomenal question. And uh, one that I uh, take on as a personal mission to kind of educate and empower the future entrepreneurs as young as K through 12. Because at the end of the day, when I met Kevin, he was not K through 12. Most of the entrepreneurs that I work with, or most of the students that I teach are almost past the point of no return, right? We're so bombarded with like the noise of like what in any industry of what to do and what not to do and how to do it. And there's a lot of noise out there. So I often say that if I can reach the K through 12 folks, like the high school students in those entrepreneurial programs, then maybe they'll be like the future entrepreneurs that will really understand some of the things we're going to talk about right now, which is when do you get a lawyer and how early do you need them? And can I do it myself? And do I have to pay for it? So I'll say this, that um, I definitely have clients that have done it themselves. I'm not going to lie about that. 
those clients that I think that can best do it themselves are the ones that can fully inform themselves and understand the legal and technical process around getting intellectual property or starting a corporation because it's legal and it's technical. And so some people that have innately could learn that and understand that and maneuver it and know when it's time even to bring in a lawyer when they think they know the best situation as well. But then there are the ones that just don't know anything or try to teach themselves something. And by the time they come and see us, we are unraveling the mess. So I think given those two extremes, where I think the ideal time to get a lawyer involved, from my perspective, at concept, like that's really, really important. If you potentially have an awesome idea And again, I know this is, it's almost hard to fathom, right? Because nobody thinks like this, but if you have a potential awesome idea that you want to protect one day, whether it's, or not, you know, I'm not advocating for patents and trademarks. You can protect it in other ways as well. But if you want something of your own and you want to monetize something of your own, then probably it's best to at least consult with an attorney that's hopefully not charging you for a consultation because that's crazy, like at the end of the day, because that's education and whatever and empowerment. But if you can at least talk to them, they may save you a lot of headache. Like as an example, a client will come into my office and all it took for me to do, I didn't charge him for this, but in the consultation, all it took for me to do is like simply type into Google Patents, like a free you know, patent search thing, or even type in Amazon to search a similar product and boom, there it was. Like a patent? That the patent was there or the product was there. And so it doesn't happen all the time, but like there are certain things that I think people almost like are blind to see. They're doing all their research, but not really, right? It's almost like the ugly baby syndrome, right? Nobody's going to tell you your baby's ugly, right? So if you're going to show your idea to five, 10 people, of course, they're going to say it's awesome. And if that's enough to bring you into my office and all it took for me was to do a quick search, then you clearly missed something, right? And you don't have to pay me to find that out. So from my perspective, it's concept. Try not to spend any money Try not to monetize, try not to market, try not to make prototypes, like try to figure it out if it already exists out there. That should be part of your competitive analysis anyway, right? That's your SWOT analysis, right? That's your understanding who is in your industry, where do you fit in, where is your novelty, where is your value proposition? That should be part of it anyway. If you're missing that step, then you should be getting more education in terms of the process of innovation, you know? So let's have a hypothetical scenario here of, you know, let's say me and a couple of my founders are building a, just for simplicity's sake, a software product. Got it. I don't know, maybe it does matter, but let's just say it's a B2B software product. We're probably going to be selling to enterprises. We've developed an initial version of it that we have a couple people testing. When should we think about, okay, is there anything protectable here? Yes, we should do the competitive analysis, see if there's competitors, understand if there's anything we might be infringing on. But when should we seek to understand if we have anything protectable? And ballpark, how much should we expect to spend on finding out? Well, just to adjust that question a little bit, because I think based on your advice, we should seek to understand it as early as possible, especially because if you're resourceful enough, you should be able to get free consultation around that. Right on. But let's say what's already being tested and there might be some liability now, but I still can't afford 
$10,000, let's say, for a lawyer, how do you navigate that? Um, like diving deeper into it, actually doing the analysis, maybe even some of the initial work to get protection. Yeah, I mean, common issue, right? Most people do not come to us at Concept, right? They're usually coming to us when they have their founder's agreements, just exactly what you just described. That, that happens all the time. It's a little bit of an issue for other reasons why that might be too late. I'll pick on a fact that you mentioned in your scenario, which was, we are founders, we have created software, and people are testing it, right? That's, that means people know about it. So there's this concept that, again, we don't teach in schools. And that's, you know, shame on lawyers for not going into grade schools to teach this. Because if they knew this, then maybe they wouldn't have been in the situation where you're coming to me now, which is that people publicly know about it. Mm-hmm. There's this concept in patent law, in U.S. patent law, well, forget the other countries, we'll just talk about the United States because it, it's different in other countries that says if if you ever wanted to protect what you want to protect, and again, not everybody has to get a patent, not everybody has to choose to get a patent, it's a choice you make, but if you ever wanted protection on that software, even after finding out that there is something protectable, and then you want to file for protection, and we'll talk about the money in a second, there's a concept in US patent law that says that if it's been publicly known for more than a year, then you can't file a patent on it ever. Hmm. That's huge. I can't tell you how many clients will come into my office. I've been in situations where a client has come to my office in that exact same scenario. And when we when we mapped out exactly when their first public disclosure was to their beta, like to their five or six customers, people that were not under a confidentiality agreement, it was public. They were like three days away from a year. Mm. What does that mean? If we ever wanted to file a patent, we had to do it in those three days. And I'm sure this gets really complex, but just to touch the surface of this, what constitutes a public disclosure of your IP? I mean, if you just have people using the product, but they don't know how it actually works, the protectable part of it, does that count? Ah, Excellent question. So this is brand new law. It only happened as of March 16, 2013. President Obama signs the American Invents Act. And so we don't know the exact, there's no exact answer to that question. Question, only to say to you that something is public if it's not under an NDA, right? If it's not under non-disclosure, it starts off as public. And then you have to measure how much information have you actually shared. So the way the courts have kind of come down on this, because, you know, courts, the, our laws are all interrelated to our court system in the United States, which is why we're such a mature jurisdiction, mature country. They say that if a reasonable, ordinary prudent software technologist, right? In this example, it's software. It could be a chemistry guy. It could be a physics guy. It could be a mechanical engineering guy. Somewhere that, some people that understand software development, if they have enough of information from what you've created publicly to maybe rebuild this, then that's too much. So that is like, oh oh my God, like that's like such a crazy answer because that could mean little or mod or, so we always say err on the side of don't make anything public if you don't have to, right? At the end of the day, listen, I know people don't have money. That's the, that's the name of the game, right? They, people don't have money. How do they afford this? There are ways to digest some of this in order to move to the next level. You know, doing a patent search is free. Right? You can go on Google Patents and kind of do that yourself to kind of get some idea as to whether you're headed in the right direction. You probably want to get a patent attorney to confirm what you found. Right, We don't want you to make this, oh my God, I'm screwed decision because of what I found, because there could be a way for you to kind of get around what you might have found that you might think is similar. 
And then if there is, so if you do recognize that there is something patentable, either by yourself or with the confirmation of a patent attorney, filing an application should not be overly expensive proposition. There are ways to kind of streamline it. There are ways to get something on file that gives you more opportunity to kind of raise more money, right? You'll have your line in the sand, as we call it, your filing date. And it's a kind of a lower priced application that allows you to one year to kind of really ramp up and maybe get more money to afford a much broader patent application. We have that in America. Like entrepreneurs should be taking advantage of that. What would that initial first year cost be versus, let's say, that second year cost of, of widening in that? So I'll tell you our fees, put into perspective. There's probably cheaper than us and there's definitely more expensive than us, for sure. But a search is $790, which is not such a crazy fee. The first initial application is about $2,500. And then that year later is usually the balance, which is another $2,500. So if you look at a patent application, it's about $5,000 mm-hmm. uh, average. And uh, hopefully you're working with a firm that can you know, do like a prepayment plan. Like you can pay us off and then when you pay us off, we'll file it for you type of thing. There are different ways to kind of cut that cost. I mean, overall, I think the entire cost of a patent application, a patent would take take you about three years, would probably cost about $10,000, which is probably, I mean, from my experience, the least amount of money you will spend in any industry. I mean, you'll probably spend about $6,000 on like Google AdWords in a month. I mean, if you really are doing well, you know, so it always seems like a lot of money because one, it's legal. And then two, it's something that has to happen before you kind of ramp up because you want to have protection before you move to the next stage. Hmm. Yeah, it's catch-22, for sure. Yeah, I feel like a lot of times when you're dealing with legal issues, the answer is usually it depends. Yeah, famous <laughs> lawyer answer, for sure. <laughs> but if we're going to sort of put our entrepreneurial hats on here for a second, and this is going to be a hard question to answer, but you know, if I'm still at this stage and I'm coming to you, You know, one of the things that I see a mistake that we see entrepreneurs making is that they will sort of worry about maybe if they're a little bit more risk averse, they'll worry about making sure that the NDA is signed. And if I'm listening to this episode, I'm thinking, shit, does that mean I have to tell every single prospect that I'm talking to to sign an NDA before having a discussion? And I tend to think the answer is no, you need to prioritize making sure that you get the customer to commit that you can have more of these validation points to then prove to your investors or whoever, maybe future customers that you're actually a real company. So how do you balance that? I mean, there is obviously risk here as well, but at the same time, I might spend 10 grand on a patent application, but if that means I'm not getting customers, I'm not going to exist as a company. Agreed. The patent process is not in a vacuum. The entrepreneurial process is not just the patent process. It's everything. But I think you hit the nail on the head. You must somehow prioritize this because you can continue to get customers and not pursue the patent, let's say, but then once you get your customers, you won't be able, let's say, under the laws we were talking about, to get the patent. Hmm. And that's not a vice versa situation, right? If you got, if you paid for some of the patent, you hopefully can still get the customers. One negates the other in that situation. But I want to say that it's tough There are no easy answers for this, but I've seen it done in all ways. All I'm advocating is that an entrepreneur understands the risks. I don't even think 
that's there sometimes. And I personally take blame for that kind of thing, right? I'm okay with you, you know, building your customer base so that you can get your investors, but then you need to understand that you probably have to do that within a specific time frame because you may not then be able, you might be statutorily legally blocked from getting a patent if you ever want one or your investors are now demanding one, which might be the situation. So I definitely have clients that play the risk and toe the line and keep their disclosures as close to the vest as possible, create a prototype, try to get some sales, know when their earliest disclosure was, because they know they only have one year from that earliest public disclosure, even if they were keeping things close to the vest. But in this scenario, they're telling some people at least, or they're selling the product at least, so there are public disclosures, and that people try to do it within that year. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. It's definitely a calculated risk. It also depends on the industry, on the prototype, on the commercialization efforts, how quickly can you get to market? Like, depending on the industry, that that answer changes. But can I just say about what your comment about the non-disclosure agreements? This is how bad it is. Apparently, there are only very few professions in the world that are bound by confidentiality, regardless if they sign an NDA or not, right? Lawyers, doctors, priests, rabbis, psychiatrists. You can tell us anything and it won't be considered public. Oh, by the way, your spouse also, there's a marital privilege, husband and wife. Hmm. But anybody else, your child, (laughs) anybody else, your grandmother, your best friend, those are considered public disclosures. Those need non-disclosures. You'd be surprised. That's the black letter law. Um, yeah, so you probably should, like, from my perspective, you don't trust anyone but your mother. But if your mother had the means and the opportunity to potentially take your idea, I'd probably get her to sign. Sure. That's the most lawyer thing yeah. I've heard today. <laughs> totally. <laughs> my mother loves that. Uh, that's, that's hilarious. Um, so an, another broad stroke question, and just to preface this with the fact that none of this should be considered legal counsel if you're Thank listening you. to this. Thank you. That's uh, a very lawyerly <laughs> thing to do, actually. Thank um, you. We've learned. But, you know, I'm sure you have people coming to you all the time that are trying to just get advice, especially through these accelerator programs. Are there any clear, I'm sure there's gray areas, but are there any sometimes clear distinctions where somebody comes to you and you're like, you know what, you don't really have anything protectable here and it's just not worth for you to pursue, at least at this stage. Do you have any stories about that or at least maybe any general frameworks of thinking around that? Yeah, I'm the, probably the first patent attorney to say that not everything's patentable. Not because there might be not something patentable, but because it might be an industry that really doesn't require it, mm-hmm. that you can have a, a short runway and exit out pretty quick. So you may not need it. A patent takes about three years to get. So it may be obsolete by the time you get it. I have a lot of clients that will come to us with like cool website ideas or cool services ideas or things that involve software that might be open source or that uh, may not be really, in the eyes of the patent office, a technology or software that really pushes technology forward, which is what you really have to do. So you have to have that. So there's, I have a lot of clients that will come to us with like an example. I had a guy who came to us with like a dating app. And uh, it worked a little bit different than most of the dating apps that we probably know today. Uh, different types of ways of matching somebody by putting in information and really thought that it was something potentially patentable. At the end of the day, it really wasn't. There wasn't anything that somebody else wasn't already doing or that somebody else already doesn't didn't patent. And we have no problem. Like 30% of the people that come to our office, we have no problem saying to them, 
there's nothing here. Doesn't mean you can't get some type of protection in trademark or in like copyright of your website or how the app looks, but you may not be able to get the patent because it's not really novel, it's not really new, it's not really an improvement on software. And also you may not really need it to ramp yourself up. You should make your prototype, get your customers, get your acquisitions, get your market validation, go, just to do a runway. We have a lot of clients that will come in also with like uniquely designed products. So they're not per se things that they've invented, but maybe redesigned it in a cool way, like a kitchen gadget or something like that. And so sometimes the protection may not be for the actual gadget, but it might be for the design if they want. And so they're coming in thinking they're going to get it for the gadget, but the gadget has already been kind of invented. The design might be what's new. So let's go that protection. Hmm. There's a lot of different ways to achieve protection of intellectual property. More recently, I think what's happening, I think in the last three years, also based on new law that President Obama signed into law right before he left called the Trade Secret Act to defend the Trade Secret Act. Now having a trade secret, right? That's which is the opposite of a patent, right? You can make, that's why I say it's a choice. You can choose to get something patented and it's the most public expression of your idea. You have to spill your guts on how it works or how it's made, but you don't have to make that choice. You can keep it, you can keep what your secret sauce is, what your competitive advantage is as a trade secret. And now with under this new law, your trade secret protection is considered, you have federal rights on it as opposed to state rights, which is what it used to be before President Obama signed this new law. Now as a patent attorney, we've been counseling clients a lot saying this might be a cool software solution to something and you may not want to uh, file a patent because you might be up against Oracle, Google, Dell, Apple, Samsung, but then let's educate you on what it means to keep something secret, right? Because the trade secret protection is great, but it means that internally within your company, you have to maintain it as a secret. And that takes effort as well. That means having agreements, employee agreements, confidentiality agreements, kind of um, memorializing what that secret advantage is and kind of keeping it to keeping it within the company. So trade secret, like Coca-Cola's recipe, Correct. right? Coca-Cola's recipe or like Google's search algorithm. My students now often, they're like, I don't understand. Like, wow. I, the question I ask is like, why would a company like Google, like choose to keep their search algorithm a trade secret? And the popular answers are, well, uh, you know, it will last forever. And they're right. Like Google's now, their search algorithm is 25 years old. A patent only lasts 20 years. Right? A patent also costs money to register a patent. Google doesn't have to register anything. They just have to keep it a secret. That may cost money, but it may not maybe get to the levels of how much a patent would cost. And also the most popular answer is if nobody knows what Google's search algorithm is, meaning because it's not in this public document, of which would be a patent, right? Because they made the choice to keep it a secret, then nobody could improve it, right? They won't know how to improve it. And so... Companies may try to replicate it, and they have, but they really won't know how to exactly do it the way Google does it and then innovate on that. Yeah. So, because you mentioned sometimes then it's not worth making a patent if you know you're going to be going up against a Google because then it's public information and they might replicate it anyways and they have more legal resources. Is that correct? That's uh, sometimes how it shakes out. I do want to say, after kind of representing entrepreneurs for the last 10 years, I have been involved in situations where the little guy has gone up against the big guy, 
And when the little guy literally has the patent on file first, because it's all about who can be the first to file their patent, who has the earliest filing date, in the situation where the little guy is the one with the earliest filing date going up against a Google, Dell, Oracle, or big company in any other industry, I have seen pretty good success stories come out of that. And it usually is... My opinion has changed over the years. I don't counsel my clients to be scared of that situation anymore. I counsel them to really embrace that situation because what we see is that company potentially acquiring them, right? Because the big company wants that first patent filing date and it belongs to my smaller client, let's say, or they pay them off to go away. And Mm -hmm. that's not such a bad thing, you know? At the end of the day, you spend a lot of money into these projects Some people want to see it, you know, they want to commit their entire life to it. And there are some entrepreneurs that want to get out of it as soon as they can, you know, or think about getting out as soon as they can if they're faced with a great offer, you know, that's cool. That's okay. That's not a bad thing. I think in the beginning, I used to think it was a bad thing. But Mm. when you see the joy of a small company that gets acquired or licensed or bought out, and they get back all their money. It's like, it's a long, these are long journeys. And oh, so yeah. if they can get something for it, it's not such a bad thing. But you can potentially only do that with the patent, you hmm. know? That makes sense. I want to talk about liability a little bit because I also have a lot of entrepreneurs that come to me with a very simple question. When should I incorporate? And we don't need to delve into what kind of structure I should have, LLC versus C Corp versus S Corp. But in your opinion, let's say not as a lawyer, what's the latest... I can incorporate. Yeah. Um, so I'll answer with a little a story, something real that happened. Uh, three founders came into my office. They, they weren't even trying to get a patent, just so you know. This was not even about a patent. This was they had a really cool idea for a website. It was like a service, uh, uh, interesting service concept. And um, they were three best friends. They went to church together. Like it was like, you know, they were never going to screw each other. We'll just put it that way because that's what it was. And they came into my office and um, they had already, like everybody had already like put in a little money, done a little thing. And now they're coming into my office to get some consultation on what type of corporate entity and whatnot. So when I dug in a little bit deeper, I saw they've been around for a year. They've been doing this for a year. And um, part of the story was also that there was a fourth that was not pulling his weight. And so I said, this is going to be tough, right? Because, you know, if you guys would have maybe had some sort of agreement between the four of you like a year ago. Like even over email or something? It could be. We call it like a founder's agreement, like mm-hmm. standard founder's agreement. Not, I wouldn't say over email. Okay. It definitely needs to be something that everybody signs. But it has to kind of... Um, Talk about the, the rights and responsibilities that they each have to each other and mm. what happens should it all go to hell. Even if they did that by downloading a form they found online, like on Rocket Lawyer or something. That would be better than nothing, okay. right? I'm not a fan of that, but it would be better than nothing <laughs> for sure, yeah. right? Here they are coming to me and now already trying to create an agreement that has to address the situation that's already happened when I need that person that's on the outs has to be part of this. Like that's how it has to go. And uh, it was a really tough situation and it caused them to really kind of look within themselves and realize that they probably weren't going to be the best partners together. And so the whole thing imploded at the end of the day. These are church friends, the whole thing. 
So I think as early as you can do it, the better. It's so difficult to deal with those types of issues when somebody's not pulling their weight, when a founder graduates, or when somebody moves, or somebody gets married, or somebody gets divorced, somebody gets hurt, somebody just doesn't want to do it anymore, somebody just wants to cash out, like all these possible scenarios. If you had an agreement that talked about all the potential liabilities that could happen, talking about bad news, it's much better to talk about what potentially could happen bad news when you're all friends and you're having a beer and you're doing it over pizza. Try to talk about these things when you're like already split apart and you're trying to work out how each of you can get out of the situation that you don't want to be in anymore. It doesn't happen that way. That's just human nature doesn't dictate that. So what suffers the business? What suffers the idea, the service, the IP? So the earliest you can do it in class teach a course to future entrepreneurs, they get together, right? They get together in student groups and stuff like that. Then we're telling them, even as students, right? And as students, you should be entering founder agreements, right? A founder agreement is another name for an operating agreement or for bylaws. It's all the same concept of like, what are the rights and responsibilities of each of us? Should awesome things happen? And should the worst things happen? But they can hold off if they have that on incorporating. They can. It can be a pre-incorporation document. Yes, 100%. And when they choose to incorporate, that's the document that will probably morph into the more legal corporate document of an operating agreement or bylaws, shareholders agreement, something like that. Yeah, without a doubt. They can do it pre-incorporation. Yeah. Now, what if I didn't incorporate this as a project I'm working on over a weekend and I'm a hustler, I have ah. software build by Monday, I have three B2B clients using it, but I'm not incorporated yet. What kind of liability am I looking at? I know this, obviously, it depends. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, um, listen, I think the only liability, you'll, hopefully you'll never know from the liability that you're facing because hopefully everything will go well, right? Hopefully the People will pay you for the service and this and that. It usually goes to hell when something goes wrong. Right. And so let's say in that situation, at the end of the weekend, you make this software, but the customer who wanted it from you, I think that was a scenario, doesn't pay you. Well, then how are you going to try to collect from them? The reason why we have legal documents is that we can go into a court of law or threaten, threaten to go into court of law and threaten to enforce the agreement. Without agreements, it's really hard. It's really, really hard to go off emails. Hmm. It's really, really hard to go off um, like we call implied agreements, right? Things that they're not expressed in any way. They're not on a written document. They're more like they need to be implied from like the behavior of like of the parties. It's hard. Hmm. It's hard to do, you know? It's not impossible, but it's hard to do. Another quick hypothetical. Let's say money wasn't exchanged, but I have a business that's using my software, but something went wrong I lost their data, something went wrong, uh, and they are upset and are threatening legal action. Is this now going against me personally and my personal assets? That's and a really, yeah, if, if yes, if you, <laughs> that, that's another reason why we choose to incorporate and we choose to have legal agreements because you want to limit your personal liability. Uh, yeah, they probably would have a cause of action against you personally, as well as this uh, pseudo business that you were, you know, doing over the weekend, you know, to try to, that would really suck though. If you lost their data, like they probably yeah. definitely would go after you. Yeah. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> like, Well, I asked because we had a business sales software and we managed a lot of data for clients. Yeah. And 
right when we realized we we're going to have people using it before the integration is when we decided to incorporate specifically to avoid liability issues. And also because we had a feeling that we we're going to raise money at some point and it made sense anyway to do it as early as possible to have the founder agreements in place, to have the options and then stock, the equity allocated already. But to us, it made sense to do it then because we had had conversation. We weren't as worried about IP. We had conversations with these clients up until then, but right when we knew, okay, we're handling their data to us, we sensed that's a good time to probably incorporate because we want to limit liability. Yeah. That's a really good instinct. And you bring up a, that's great. Like that's when you probably should have done. If, you, if you're going to do it, you should do it then. Uh, something else you bring up, I think it's really important is, you know, everybody wants to be successful. Everybody is going to bootstrap their own way. And even the largest companies we know usually have some investment, private equity, venture, it's all, that's really sometimes the name of the game when you want to scale and commercialize. And somewhere along the line, you will have to face due diligence from investors. You want to be there. You want to be at that position. That's something where you want to be. You want to have money coming from sources that are going to help you scale to the next level. And uh, depending on the investors, there will be this due diligence. They probably they will ask, where are your contracts? Where are your corporate organization? Like, who owns what? Where have you gotten money from? Do you have IP? Did you ever get it? Do you want it? How come you haven't got it? What's the business decision? So for take away everything we said for the first, I mean, everything's valid for the first uh, half hour of talking, but that's a perfect reason to do it too. Wanting to be a successful company that does well, sooner or later, that might mean you need private investment. Again, even companies that have bootstrapped, right? Companies that uh, have, have bootstrapped all the way up to the point where they have a purchase order from Target, let's say, to make a million units. They don't have that. So they have to borrow money, right? It's either going to be an institutionalized investor, a bank, a private equity guy, a VC, a, a family friend, a credit investor, they will do the due diligence, right? Before they're going to give you the money, they're going to want to know that, you have, that you've done everything properly. And so, um, yeah, having agreements and kind of understanding what the limits of your liability is in terms of what type of corporation you have, it's really important. If you're getting involved with someone else's intellectual property, like their data, then yeah, you probably should have something to limit your liability for sure. <laughs> uh, well, this is already really helpful. And I think for folks that are listening there should be some peace of mind. First of all, because there's uh, legal counsel that with companies like yours, with uh, lawyers that actually care about the entrepreneurs that aren't just trying to make a buck, uh, that can provide you with those resources early on. Because in the end of the day, it's a relationship game like anything else, and uh, you want to work with these entrepreneurs. And these lawyers should want to work with you because hopefully you're going to be successful, and there's trust that you're establishing over time, and everyone's going to win in the end of the day. But there are ways to be resourceful. You know, your first few conversations with a lawyer shouldn't cost you really anything Nothing. because there's a lot of options out there for you. And even though the answer sometimes might be it depends, you do need to do your own research. You need to have these conversations to have some peace of mind because in the end of the day, whether it's a co-founder issue that might come up or a liability issue that might come up where you want to protect yourself, it is something important that you have to consider. As an entrepreneur, we always say that you, even if you're not a numbers guy or girl, you have to figure out the finances. You have to understand your economics. If you're not a salesperson, you have to learn how to sell. Sure. If you're not a presenter, you still are going to have to do it because that's the game of an entrepreneur. And 
for better or worse. Uh, if you're not into the uh, lawyer stuff, the legal uh, jargon, you still have to look through every contract and agreement, whether it's with your customers or with your co-founders, um, because nobody else is going to do it for you. Right. And oftentimes, actually, we found, too, that, I mean, lawyers aren't infallible either. Uh, yeah. Sometimes they make mistakes as well. For sure. And it's uh, just somebody that's part of your team that you're working with to hopefully protect you and just increase the chances of success. So there are options for you out there to get educated. But at the end of the day, you should be able to have a conversation to have some of that peace of mind. David Poselski of Gerhardt Law, thank you so much for coming on the show and being so open with your information and also just being a champion of entrepreneurs everywhere. We really appreciate you and the work that you do. And, uh, and perhaps we'll have you on the show another time so we can dive deeper into some of this stuff because there's so much to uncover. Thank you, David. Awesome. Thank you, guys.